is Your Working Life, a podcast that provides you with tools, inspiration, and resources so you can enjoy your career and love your life. I'm Caroline Dowd Higgins. I'm a speaker and a career and executive coach. And today I welcome Julie Kratz to the show. Julie, I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. You're a friend and a colleague, and we're going to have a great conversation about unconscious bias and your training within companies. Welcome. Thank you for having me. You know, this is such a juicy topic, Julie, and I will confess, because you and I are out there in the trenches, coaching and training and speaking, it's it's also incredibly misunderstood. So I'm relying on your expertise today to help our global audience really understand. So let's start from the beginning. Please help us define what is unconscious bias? <laughs> yes, great baseline information to make sure we're all on the same page. So essentially, unconscious bias are the things that we're thinking and not always saying or doing. So our brains are short wired to make sure that we're analyzing the situation for safety at all times. And our, the way our primitive brain does that is we recognize patterns, make assumptions, and then sometimes behave in a way that's consistent with those patterns and assumptions that may not always be true. And so we have to take a step back and kind of challenge our own thinking and ask ourselves the question, how do I know that's true? Based on what information do I have to know that this person is fill in the blank or the situation is fill in the blank? So again, it's this hardwiring kind of primitive brain short circuiting that we do naturally. And a lot of times we don't even know we're doing it. Thus the term unconscious as a part of bias. Thank you for that really clear definition. That's helpful. Why is the unconscious bias phenomenon really wreaking havoc in the workplace? Well, what we're finding is that we're in a really interesting place with diversity and inclusion. Inside many organizations, the conversation is being had. We care about diversity. We value it. Inclusion is something that's important to our culture and maybe even to our leadership skill set. However, Where the real breakdown occurs is these everyday microaggressions. And when I use the term microaggression, I mean these little tiny biased acts that take place inside organizations. And they tend to happen to underrepresented groups at a much higher rate than the majority groups. For the most part, inside organizations, that means Caucasian male uh, has to And oftentimes, especially the leadership levels, is very dominant and part of that majority group. So for people of color, women, people with disabilities, LGBTQ, these different underrepresented groups, we tend to behave in a way that just sends little signals that they don't belong. And so bias is really the root of what's preventing diversity and inclusion from actually happening inside organizations. Because if you're not like the majority group, you look different, you feel different, you act different, you have a different background, you're less likely to be seen, you're less likely to be heard, you're less likely to be promoted. And because of that, because of the diversity you bring, you're culture is sending those signals that eh, you're not like one of us, right? And so it's really hard for diverse talent to feel included if bias is happening. And and what the evidence shows is it's happening everywhere all of the time. Uh, Again, because this is how we're wired. And so it's it's undoing some of this natural wiring and becoming more aware of it. 
You know what I find so interesting, Julie, everybody, well, let me back up, corporate America, right? So many organizations have diversity inclusion all over their website, their mission statements, but they're not often walking the walk, right? Because these microaggressions accumulate, right? And it, and it really impacts retention and advancement, certainly morale and, and just feeling uh, confident. So how are we moving the needle? You're a certified unconscious bias trainer, so your expertise is needed globally, but how are we moving the needle? Yeah, great question, Caroline. It, what we're, we're pretty far ahead in the, what I would call the diversity and inclusion journey. At least from a mouthpiece perspective, many organizations have been talking about this for the last 5, 10, maybe even 15 years if they were on the leading edge of it. Harvard Business Review has been publishing articles about the value of diversity, what how diverse teams outperform teams that are not as diverse, um, the factors on inclusion, business results. I mean, you name it, the data, there is a plethora out there. Now, again, back to why is this not taking root inside organizations? Why are the numbers, <laughs> if you look at it, Caroline, the numbers are pretty much identical. <laughs> you know, you and I focus on the women's space. It, it's women as CEOs, women in leadership on boards. Uh, the numbers, unfortunately, over the last several years are stagnant. Um, in some cases are getting worse as far as CEOs go. And so where we're at, I think, is a really, um, unfortunately, polarizing time where you're either this or you're that, uh, which is a whole opposite point of diversity and inclusion is to make sure that we all feel included uh, and we our differences are actually celebrated. But in fact, in, in kind of this polarizing time that we're experiencing politically and socially, I feel like people are either in or they're out. And, and this is why I really believe, and I keep saying this every year, but I really believe that 2020 is the year of the ally in supporting the person that comes into the conversation, celebrating the person that's maybe a part of the majority group that for all the lack of... Um, effort to want to be a part of the conversation is quote unquote non-diverse, right? By the variables that we would use by, you know, gender, race, and the kind of normal diversity variables, if you will. I think 2020 could be such a great opportunity for, and I don't want to wait that long, but I think to really celebrate what does it mean to lead like an ally? What does it mean to step into this candid conversation that I may not otherwise feel a part of, but guess what? I care. I empathize. I'm practicing some emotional intelligence around it. I'm telling my own diversity story of a time I felt different or didn't belong. And so I, I think we're on, I really feel like we're close to celebrating these allies coming into the fold because we really, we really can't leave anyone behind to truly celebrate diversity and inclusion. What I love about that, Julie, is you're, you're giving everybody the charge, right? The challenge to be proactive and not wait for their organization, perhaps to put a plan in the place, but mm -hmm. for each of us as individuals to say, okay, how can I support others? How can I be an ally? And you wrote an incredible book called One, How Male Allies Support Women for Gender Equality. So what might that look like? You know, we, we are both incredibly passionate about empowering women. And I think men are part of that journey. 
Yeah, yeah. And so we found four key things of what it meant to be an ally and how to engage allies. Because what the research shows is that women aren't so good at building these strategic relationships in the workplace, largely because you, know, you look to men as mentors and, and sponsors, it's easier to mentor and sponsor people that look like us and think like us. So it's kind of breaking this norm a little bit and inviting men into the dialogue, which historically women's organizations, women's conferences, women's resource groups or affinity groups excluded men, which is kind of opposite of inclusion, if you ask me. But I understand at, at the beginning of a movement, you need a safe place. Things aren't going well, thus the need for the movement. And so you want to be vulnerable and share with people that are like you and experiencing things like you. Now, now when we look at the momentum that we're gathering as, as like-minded women getting together, what an opportunity to reach out and engage these wonderful male allies that have shared their stories with me. And essentially, after dozens of interviews with men and women all over the country, different backgrounds, different generations, functional areas, industries, you name it, I try to get as diverse as possible in the spirit of diversity. They told me four key things. And I remember having this moment at my whiteboard as I was doing the research and starting to write. It's kind of like, I call it this beautiful mind moment where it's like, all these things are coming together. And these four things that I found was what I call the heart strategy. And from a male ally perspective, it's really channeling empathy. You know, I don't know what it's like to be a woman, but guess what? I can be curious. And maybe I've got some amazing women that I care about excuse me, personally and professionally, that I want to channel that empathy towards other women that might be having a similar experience. In fact, what the research bears is that men, especially men that have had their firstborn as a daughter, are 50% more likely to support gender equality. So, hey, you don't have to have a daughter to be an ally, but what a great common ground to work from. And then on the other side of that, on the heart strategy, what women shared with me, <clears throat> excuse me, is that they really wanted uh, they they really wanted to start the conversation with what's in it for men. So again, this business case, pointing out like, hey, look at our C-suite. Hmm, can't help but notice there's only a couple women. And I would like to see it increased. I would like to know what we're doing to measure that and how, what goals do we have around that because we're we're losing out on those immense profits and business results if, if we don't have diversity at the top. And so asking that question and, and starting with the WIFM and having an intentional dialogue around it. The second piece uh, was around storytelling. Stories stick in our brains much more than facts and figures. And for women, unfortunately, we're, one of our shortfalls is, is we don't tell our story. We don't self-promote as much as our male counterparts do on average. And men often over-talk women and don't listen as much as they could. So what an opportunity to listen to her story as an ally and to know our stories as women. And essentially, it's it's the answer to the question, what do you do? What are you all about? How can you tell your story in a succinct way that has a beginning, middle, and end? And it's short and succinct, and it describes where you've been, where you are now, and where you're going. And then our allies are much more equipped to help us if they know what we want. Uh, the third piece was around speaking up together. So as allies, it's tempting to speak up for us. Like, oh, shame on you. Don't do that. You know, don't interrupt her. The save the day mentality that's played out in fairy tales, not helpful in the workplace. That's not what our allies do. I often say as men, don't put on your rescue cape. <laughs> Resist the urge to do that. 
what we need you to do is ask us, hey, did you notice someone interrupted you in that meeting? How would you like me to be supportive for you in that? Maybe it's just talking that through individually. Maybe it's equipping her with the tools to save her own day and be her own ally. You don't know until you ask. And so really asking and speaking up together in an intentional dialogue that calls out bad behavior. We we don't want to be bystanders. We want to be upstanders. We want to see something that's uncomfortable, see something that's not right, that we feel comfortable saying something. And this is where the diversity and inclusion conversation has advanced. The organizations that are getting good at this are having candid conversations everywhere. And so it really sets the boundaries for what acceptable behavior is like. And it's okay if it's a little uncomfortable, right? But we need to be having these healthy conflict conversations if we want to eliminate these microaggressions that we know are the root of what prevents us from being diverse and inclusive. And then the fourth piece was around work and life integration. And so across the board, we found that in in a traditional gender partnership where it's a man and a woman, women on average do six hours more work at home a week than their male counterparts. And so that really lends itself to a discussion about what does that look like? What does that balance look like in our house? And just it being open to, hey, it doesn't have to be a 50-50 split, but could we do the fair share? Could we unpack this? And I've had countless examples and workshops of men. This is a light bulb moment of, I had no idea how much she did. Of course she's exhausted. <laughs> So Caroline, yeah, those are the four strategies. And I, I just, it, it still has so much application. A year and a half later, we, we published right after the Me Too hashtag broke. Me Too's been around for decades, but the hashtag when it really got attention uh, was a year and a half ago. And we published right after that. So it's been a wild ride since, but I think still has so much application in organizations. I love your term, healthy conflict conversations, Julie. That's awesome. We're going to be right back after a quick break. Your working life is powered by your stories. We want to hear more from our listeners about your experiences in the workplace. Tell us what challenges you've overcome or tips you've learned along the way. And even better, if you don't have the answers, let us know what issues you want to learn more about. We want this podcast to serve you in all of your career and life needs. Send me an email at caroline at carolinedoubthiggins.com. So, Julie, are there companies who are getting it? And are, do you feel like you are making an impact with all of your incredible training and facilitation? I, I, I want to share, too, I will soon be the beneficiary of being someone in an audience where you're training. We're bringing you in at the Indiana University Alumni Association to train our team And um, I just love your process because you really had intentional conversations with us to figure out what is the dynamic of the group and and what were the issues that we wanted to address. So that customization must be key with all of your clients. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it has to feel right to you. I often say with our allies, we've got to meet them where they're at. There's not a one-size approach to this conversation. And and knowing you, how many folks you have that are out in the field, that it's really important that they're equipped with the tools so that they can keep this conversation alive beyond kind of this one-time training event. And, and that's what I'm starting to see in the education world is the need for ongoing programming, coaching, um, 
my, what I call micro learning, you know, giving people a tool, having them practice it, come back and unpack what's gone well with that, what's going better, get some coaching around it so that they um, can change behavior and adapt over time. You know, behavior change doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen at a one day workshop. It happens in a series of intentional events. And so, uh, you know, your question about organizations that are getting it right, I have to point to Indiana University, you know, as, a, as an alum myself, I'm a little biased. <laughs> But I would say, you know, there, I've had several really great conversations, whether that's up here at IUPUI. We did an engagement as Allies Brunch with the, their women's chapter down at Indiana University, um, the full-time Kelly School of Business, their MBA um, office, as well as their graduate career services office engaged me in, in doing some certification for their leaders. So it's very much on the radar. Like this is important. This is something we're committed to and we will invest in it, which that's where I see a difference with other organizations. They're, they're curious, you know, come in and tell us why it's important. Come in and tell us what it is, which I am absolutely fine with doing that, but that's not, that's not going to create impact. That's the beginning of the conversation. If that's what you need to feel like it's more palatable, that you can kind of get your team around it. So there's less defensiveness and create some safety and, and, and permission to be vulnerable, then we can use that as step one. Um, but you're right. Step two, three, four, they all look different for all sorts of organizations. And I would say, I wish I could point to somebody that's getting this right. I think we're fortunate here in central Indiana, you know, people are like, wow, you're from Indiana. You do diversity and inclusion work. Like, hmm, that must be interesting. <laughs> Especially when I'm, you know, I was in California last week. I go to New York a few times a year to speak. And I don't know what they think goes on here, but I think we've got some really great companies that are doing some fascinating things. I mean, Salesforce, for example, they've been on the forefront of this diversity and inclusion conversation for uh, as long as they've been around. And their CEO, if you want to check out something powerful, a 60-minute spot interview last year about pay equality. You know, they, they've paid multiple millions of dollars to get this right, and they're still actively working on it. Cummins uh, in Southern Indiana, 35% of their leadership team is now female. And they, they did it they started that track 10 years ago because they believed what was right for building communities and, and building their customer base was having more women represented. So it, it, it's a journey. <laughs> no organization is perfect and at 50-50 or more. No industry, in fact, is, male, um, is female dominated. There is not a such thing. You know, find me one. Uh, so it's it's um it really is about meeting our allies where where they are at and making sure we support them with the right tools to get them along that journey and get them steps further. So Julie, I'm seeing a shift in nomenclature in some organizations where they're shifting away from the diversity and inclusion term and just calling it inclusion to be more welcoming and not necessarily putting people in individual buckets, right, that distinguish them or set them apart to be more all-inclusive and all-welcoming. Do you think that is something that is growing? Yeah, I'm I'm seeing different words than DNI. So DNI is kind of the historical acronym uh, that I would say ten years ago really started to take root. Um, and since there have been a few different versions of that word equality, I'm actually starting to see quite a bit. Um, that might be sandwiched between diversity and inclusion, diversity equality and inclusion. I'm starting to see DEI officers um, belonging. 
a chief belonging officer, I know is uh, uh, something out in some of the tech firms in Silicon Valley are, are using that term, chief heart officer, I've also heard. So there's a variety of terms that we use to describe this. There's also an increasing where I see the the biggest trend going with this line of work is to embed it inside the organization. So rather than having this chief diversity, equality, inclusion officer or program area, let's make sure all leaders are um, being inclusive, that that's being taught, that that's being rewarded, that those behaviors were really crisp and clear on as expectations. So definitely pros and cons to that. You know, what I do know is if it's just one person's job, then it's just one person's job and and people kind of get, you know, an excuse, be like, oh, that's not my job. If it's everyone's job, then it's no one's job. So you have to measure it. You have to reinforce it. Uh, You really have to be firm and hold people accountable to it. So I don't know if either way is right or wrong. I think it's all about your culture. You know, that's a perfect segue. So as we end, Julie, I want to ask, what's one thing that a listener can do to support this message? And we have women and men listening all over the world. So it it is truly a diverse listening audience. What's one thing that they can take responsibility for that that will help? Yeah, take the implicit bias uh, assessment. So Harvard, I've mentioned several times, has great data on this. They actually have a free online assessment tool that takes about 10 minutes. You can take um, check your bias in any one of those given categories. So gender and race are the most popular because there's visible diversity. Um, But there's also things like age, uh, disability, LGBTQ. uh, and, And what the research shows is that everyone has bias in at least one of those areas. It's very, very rare um, that someone will not express bias. And so I think that gives us the freedom to say, hey, okay, phew, I'm human. (laughs) Now I know I'm self-aware and now that can influence my behavior. It's very hard to make changes if, if you don't have a grasp on where you are at currently. So we can certainly link to that um, implicit bias, harvard.edu. It's a very easy place to find. And it's a simple, free, um, very quick assessment that that anyone can take. Julie, thanks so much for joining me today on Your Working Life. I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to speak with you about unconscious bias and your incredible work to make sure that all voices in the room are heard. Let me tell our global audience about your book. It's titled One, How Male Allies Support Women for Gender Equality. And of course, it's available on Amazon. And I want to remind people of your website, nextpivotpoint.com. Julie, thanks so much. Thank you, Caroline. And if you like the show, subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. And even better, leave us a review because that helps people find us online. And let us know what career-minded issues you would like to hear on a future show. You can find me on Twitter at Higgins. And I want to give a special thanks to my podcast colleagues, Laura Deck, Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, and Claire McInerney, our Executive Producer. Thanks for making this show awesome for our global audience. I'm Caroline Dow Higgins. Thanks for listening.